Hello, my name is Ashley Peterson, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Saber, and you are listening to The Saber Spot on 88.5 FM WCUG. And today I have in the virtual studio, again, uh, Jessica DeMarco Jacobson, our senior copy editor. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing okay. Um, For us, we are in our second week of uh, Return to Campus, and I believe for our listeners, it'll be the third week. And so interesting to see how that's going to contrast. Um, If I'm honest, less has changed um, in a week than I had anticipated as far as just campus-wide operations and things like that. Um, I think because of COVID and everything, it's very hard to know the pace at which things will evolve, if that makes sense. Um, So I don't know. It's been very interesting to see whether or not, you know, the things that we observed last week are still true today. And I think so far that uh, most of it has been fairly consistent with what we're experiencing right now. I don't know if you see that. Uh, Seems the same to me. As I've said before, I am not even attending in-person classes. Um, So I know that a lot of students are experiencing a lot of different modes of learning right now. Uh, And so I feel like that makes the student experience have a lot of variety at the minute. Um, I don't think any one person has the exact same experience as anyone else right now. So that's something that's going to be interesting also to see continuing. Something that I thought would be a good idea to mention and bring to our listeners' views um, is the fact that in some of the return to campus emails, uh, CSU has been mentioning the amount of self-recorded reported cases that are active right now. Um, as of our the last counting, and I don't know that this will be accurate as of um, the release of this recording, um, but the last update we got said that it was eight active cases um, in the university. So it's important to note too that these are self-reported. Um, so, you know, it's extremely voluntary. Um, it's hard to have um, all of the information uh, or know that we know what each case is, but that's what we're working with right now as far as information goes. And I think kind of jumping off of that, um, we are gonna be talking about something that's really interesting and was actually in the news shortly before the campus reopened. Um, We're gonna be talking about this company and remind me how to uh, pronounce that again, Jessica? Corvius. Mm-hmm. And can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and also why our listeners should care? Yes. Uh, So Corvius is a private company that works with USG, which is the University System of Georgia. Um, They have a public-private partnership. Um, And basically what Corvius does is, like, they develop and manage – Uh, student housing across the nine campuses and that's actually like uh, verbatim from what their sources say Um, and fun fact Corvius is Latin it means by the way of the heart Um, but yeah so they're they're responsible for creating Clearview Hall which was built a few years ago on our campus So they have a pretty direct tie to students living on campus. 
Indeed. Um, and I think a lot of us may not have even heard of this company before um, it was in the news recently. I certainly didn't know. I didn't know that our dorms, at least some of them, were privately operated at all. Um, and so I think that was the first layer of um, surprise um, in the event of all these things coming out. And so we know that they're connected to CSU that way. Why were they in the news recently? Well, that's a kind of hard thing to jump into. Kind of like, I don't even know where to start. Um, honestly, I never heard of Corvius either until I just saw a bunch of like Georgia Tech uh, professors and students talking about it. I first learned about it from a tweet from, I, I believe it's pronounced Dr. Corey Gergen. Uh, G-O-E-R-G-E-N. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Um, he's a professor of disability studies in the 18th century literature. He tweeted about this like public document um, that was actually an internal document from the USG Board of Regents, and it revealed a lot about the relationship between Corvius and USG and uh, if you look into that document, the language kind of seems to pressure USG's, USG to make dorms less safe so that housing resumes normally as it did before the pandemic. But I can go a little bit more into that. Yeah, I think it's important to, you know, also say, you know, the language here can get kind of murky, uh, we could say allegedly, um, but a lot of, this has received a lot of uh, concern and pushback from universities and professors across the board in Georgia. Um, and so that is why it's kind of on our radar today. Um, but this is all information that we have gleaned from uh, this document and from subsequent <clears throat> and from subsequent uh, statements from USG itself. So um, I guess to dive into this, like I said, uh, Corbius began this relationship with USG a few years ago, back in 2014. It was a deal for $517 million um, so that Corbius would develop the living on campus. Uh, and at the time, they felt like their relationship with UG, USG was a proven model that would uh, be in the interest of students and faculty. So this agreement stated that they would be able to build like, I think, 3,000. It was almost like 4,000. Uh, 4,000 new beds on campus across the nine campuses. And the reason why it's possible for USG to develop these public-private relationships kind of goes back to this Georgia referendum passed in 2014, um, which allowed USG to privatize some parts of student life on campus, which included dormitories. So this is a 40-year agreement. So, so they're, they're kind of locked in uh, for the next uh, 36, can I do math today? Yeah, next 30 something decades. <laughs> yeah, 30-something years. So in late May, like it, it was almost June, uh, the Board of Regents from USG received a letter 
from Corbius that basically said USG can't t do anything that prevents students from or prevents or discourages students from living on campus. They can't do anything that interferes with Corvius's operations. So the, the I guess, contract legal language, legalese language uh, prevents them from really doing anything. Um, in fact, uh, the Corvius letter revealed that Corvius would uh, legally challenge USG if they tried to discourage students from returning to campus. So that was pretty spicy. Which is all interesting as well because, you know, this uh, letter was received in May um, and then it kind of came out um, and was obtained actually through the Freedom of Information um, Act um, in August. And so this had been happening, you know, these conversations had been going on, just none of us had known it, you know, because this was an internal document. And this uh, was actually obtained by uh, student Kelly O'Neill. Um, and so that's what's really interesting about this too, is that, you know, she talked about in a different interview, how she was just looking to know, like, if there were, like, any kind of outside things uh, motivating USG, if they were opening, you know, strictly for profit or things like that. I don't think she even knew what Corvius was. And so it's kind of a weird accident, I think, that we even learned about all of this because she wasn't even looking for information on them. She was just looking for information about the dorms and safety and this is what resulted from it. So I think that's a very, very uh, interesting example of how, you know, students looking for information can <laughs> really make a difference because this has been news on, I mean, so many different uh, news stations from local to AJC. And so I think that's what's also really wild about it too, is we would not know about it if it wasn't for this one student, you know? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned her because I was just about to give her a shout out, like, go Kelly O'Neill, because she, she's been very vocal about um, the return to campus and COVID. Um, and it's just been, like, really inspiring to see her share so much information, um, specific, specifically with Georgia Tech, um, about how their uh, return to campus is going because it's inspired a lot of other journalism, including my own, about return to campus. So yeah, go her. She's she's doing the thing. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, that's why we talk about all of the stuff anyway. It's for, you know, faculty, staff, and students. You know, it's not just because it's controversial or something like that, but because it's important information for people to have. And she wanted to obtain that information for the safety of others. And so I think that's also important to recognize is that people aren't raising concerns because, you know, they are hateful or things like that it's out of concern for safety of one another and I think that's super important to keep in mind even as things can get heated across the state in these conversations for sure reading the so this document includes like it basically includes some 
uh, discussion points and at the very end of the document it includes the actual letter. The actual letter is very interesting to read. Um, it's available on the article I wrote uh, through a hyperlink. So if you're interested in reading it, which I definitely recommend, it's a bit of a long read, but you can access that on the Sabre website. But this letter basically reinstates that USG doesn't have the right to make those decisions to prevent students from living on campus. And further in the letter, it kind of, in a strange way, reminds USG of this 40-year agreement and suggests that Corvius and USG have should have aligned interests. Um, it also reminds USG that the concessionaire of Cor Corvius went like over $500 million in debt in order to annul some of USG's debt. So they're basically saying, at least how I read it, it was like, because we did this for you, you guys should, uh, you know, not do anything that doesn't interest us. Um, it's, yeah. It's very interesting language. Um, and yeah, like you said, an interesting time to bring that up. Um, something that I saw um, someone on Twitter as well, which is where a lot of these conversations are happening, um, of professors and things like that. Someone mentioned, you know, when you do uh, make an investment, enter into a business um, agreement, that does come with a degree of risk. Um, and so I think that's something to keep in mind as well, um, regardless of the amount of debt and things like that. It's every business is still a risk, uh, especially in, you know, a capitalist landscape. And so I think that's super important to just remember here as far as the reading of things like that. It's another interesting thing. Um, and you may have been about to get to this, but, you know, Corvius talked about in the letter that they intend to follow CDC guidelines as close as possible. Um, I mean, CDC guidelines do recommend um, that clothe, like shared spaces uh, such as dorms and communal halls should have physical barriers between beds when they can't be six feet apart um, and that they are most at risk when they are open at full capacity, um, including shared spaces, and they're at a lower risk when those shared spaces are closed. And so in the letter, Corvia said that they are essentially choosing to read those guidelines making it so that social distance is not required between roommates because Corvius considers roommates to be housemates. So I think that's an interesting wrinkle to this as well um, because CDC does recommend that, you know, beds be six feet apart. So that would, that's the language that's been happening around social distancing. So interesting interpretations of it there as well. I think it's important to, <laughs> you know, look at each of these points and see also just for yourself if you agree with them. Um, it's not our job to tell you either way, but I do think it's important to point out these bits that could be more subjective than it first appears. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about that because I was just about to get into it. I think it's a little worrying. Um, I should note, however, that they are um, limiting the amount of people that can use common areas and bathrooms and elevators. Um, but yeah, they haven't really done anything about the dorms as far as I 
can tell. Um, this letter also kind of added that limiting on-campus housing doesn't really benefit students because then the students would have to have to occupy off-campus housing that might be more expensive than on-campus housing. Um, they also said that off-campus housing might not have the same public health procedures. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, at least for me personally, living off campus is less expensive than living on campus, but that's just me. Yeah, I mean, every uh, situation is different. Um, there is the fact that, you know, if you do live on campus, you have to have a meal plan. And so I think that is uh, something that a lot of people consider when they decide whether or not to live on campus. And something else too, um, at least at the beginning of the semester, and I'd love to know and hear from folks in housing as well, um, how it is now. But I know that at the beginning of the semester, uh, our dorms were at full capacity, actually. It was like past capacity. And so some people had to be on a waiting list and in the meantime had to um, broom in hotels that were off campus um, and in, CSU's, um, you know, communications about it, they said that it was um, a close hotel that was fairly close to campus and they would be, you know, helped with transportation and things like that. But I think it's interesting because that did end up being a concern anyway, um, as far as, you know, having to live on separate housing and things like that. So it's very interesting too, because I remember uh, Dr. Chip Reese had mentioned that, you know, he, they had not um, necessarily surveyed students, um, but later uh, University of Relations had talked about how they got the impression from the fact that so many students had applied for housing that students were ready to return to campus. And, you know, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I also think there can be other uh, variables at play there as far as if people felt that they were going to have in-person classes and so they needed to be on campus. Um, I think it would have been interesting to have a full out survey of how the whole student body was feeling. Um, and perhaps that's still something that could be, you know, enacted in the future. Um, as Dr. Markwood uh, continues to say, um, you know, things are fluid here. And that's the whole <laughs> gist of this uh, COVID-19 reopening situation. But did you have any other points you wanted to make about Corvius or just to point out some things about their letter? Um, I do, actually. So one thing that I found to be interesting when I was looking into this is that Corvius privated their Twitter account um, so people can't like contact them in any way at least on Twitter um, and this was shortly after um, a, a user oh sorry actually let me re-explain that um, they privated their account shortly after people started complaining about military housing issues I don't know when exactly this happened it sounded like it was somewhat recent like maybe a few months ago, but a Twitter user was talking about how they've had their uh, Twitter account privated basically since people started complaining about them. Yes, actually, um, I know that a lot of the reporting around this um, military housing uh, 
conflict was reported around uh, November 2019. And so, yeah, it was fairly recent um, and much later after the agreement between USG and Corvius. And so some of the things that people were concerned about in that housing was mold infestation, um, lead paint, rats, things like that. These are from the Washington Post and CBS News. Um, and so that is just another wrinkle to all of this and something else to consider, um, just the reasons that Corvius has been in the news in the past year. Yeah, that's definitely concerning uh, housing issues. Um, so shortly after, or actually a few days before I wrote this article, USG released this statement about inaccurate media reports about Corvius, which I found to be very odd timing, but okay. Um, so basically, <laughs> they said in this uh, statement that no USG institution factored into Corby's demands for USG housing plans. However, I would like to note that they did not say USG themselves were influenced by Corby's. And the statement ended by saying that USG is committed to the safety and health of students and faculty. Um, and that they plan to continue following uh, CDC guidelines. Yes, and um, I've personally reached out a couple times to USG Chancellor Steve Wrigley. Um, so far, I have not received um, any kind of reply, I think. Um, it's been interesting. We haven't seen a, a lot of communication from him as a person. Um, but, you know, as I've said, that could still change and the situation is still fluid. Um, but yes, and it's a very complicated and long-winded situation, but I really wanted to talk about it today because Jessica did write that great article. And also there's just so much context um, that we can try to add to the situation as well. Um, and for any students that were looking for kind of more of a deeper understanding of what is actually going on and what are the variables surrounding that situation. Did you have anything else you wanted to share with us today? Uh, not regarding Corvius. I think that pretty much sums it up. Um, trying to explain it is kind of difficult um, just because it has so many layers to it. I would definitely recommend reading the article. But yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, I'm curious to see how it, this relationship will unfold as uh, cases continue to rise in the United States and especially in Georgia. Right. Um, obviously, the hope is that they don't, um, but that does require uh, a reaction from different entities and the behavior of individuals. So. We will just have to see that. But thank you so much for joining me today, Jessica. And thank you for listening to The Saber Spot on 88.5 FM WCUG. The Saber Spot was produced with the cooperation of the student staff of 88.5 WCUG Cougar Radio and the CSU Department of Communication Department Chair, Dr. Gibson. Dr. Bruce Getz is WCUG's faculty advisor. Thank you to Joe Miller, Saber faculty advisor. You can listen to this show and other shows like No Strangers Here on 88.5 FM, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. Just search our call letters WCUG.